Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. Today I will complete the series on building a spiritual legacy. Now, legacy is important. Presidents fight for legacy. They want to be remembered for what they did. They want to be remembered for what they stood for, for the accomplishments and achievements that they leave behind. That's one of the reasons presidential libraries are built, so that legacy may continue. Legacy is important to us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be remembered for what we leave behind, for whether or not the generation that comes up behind us is able to embrace the very things, the very principles we have taught them. In fact, we want to know that they did it better than we did, that our children and our grandchildren have embraced the core doctrines and owned them for themselves, knowing that God does not have grandchildren, just children so that our children will own the faith we pass on to them as their own and build their own spiritual legacy and develop their own moorings so that they will indeed teach their children to do it better than they've done it. And in this series of messages, I have extracted some of the wonderful psalms, the hymns of praise, that's what the psalm book is, it's the hymn book of the Old Testament, the hymn book even of the New Testament, as God's people come together to worship. And from specific Psalms, I have gleaned or attempted to glean certain key principles that as a grandfather and as a father, I want to pass on to my children and my grandchildren for generations to come. I come now to the last of these principles that I am going to cover. Certainly there are many more, but I've tried to build the key ones, starting with the first one. I believe there are two very critical decisions that everyone will make in their life. The first one is the decision as to whether or not they will trust Christ as their Savior and Lord, whether or not they will believe the gospel and receive in faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone for their salvation. That was the very first principle in this series from Matthew 6.33, where we talked about building a legacy of a worldview that holds tenaciously to this principle that we must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that all these other things will be added unto us. 
That is the most important decision any human being will ever make, whether or not they will believe the claims of Jesus Christ, whether or not they will receive Christ as God's free gift of eternal life to us. The second most important decision you will ever make is something that I say to every young couple as they stand before me up here, and that is who you will marry and whether or not you marry the right person. I always tell the couples up here that this is the second most important decision you will ever make in your life, who you will make your life partner and completer. I ask the men and I ask the women, are you absolutely positively sure that you are marrying the right person? You know, to me, it's a very critical thing to speak of in the context of a society, including this church, and including those who watch by TV or listen by radio, or if you're receiving this message on tape, wherever you are, in the many countries that this broadcast covers, it's important for you to know that I know that we live in the context of a divorce culture. Many of you sitting here have been divorced. Some of you are living in situations of what we now call blended families. I know that. And this message is certainly not meant to impose any unwarranted guilt on any of you. I am not saying for one moment that if you have divorced, you cannot live a productive and God-honoring life as a believer. What I am saying to you is that we now live in a culture in which the nuclear family has experienced a nuclear disaster. That as we sit here today, the majority of those who live in this culture are either separated or divorced or living in second marriages or third marriages, and some have avoided marriage altogether and are simply living together. This is not God's will. It is not God's best. And I say that unapologetically, again, not to impose any guilt, but to recognize that you and I live in a broken world. Some of you have been victims of those who have greatly abused the marriage vow. Some of you have divorced because your spouses have committed adultery. Some of you have had to leave your homes out of fear and anguish and personal and physical abuse. I know that. That is why I keep coming back to the template. The template has been broken. God's template is very clear. One man and one woman for one lifetime. The only reason divorce is allowable, and I say allowable and not preferable, is because of the hardness of heart with which we live as sinful people. Jesus, when confronted by the Jews politically, for him to take a stand on a divorce question, no matter how he answered the question, he was going to alienate one of the political parties 
and he was going to cause himself more trouble by answering the question. The question came in this form. Can a man divorce his wife for any cause? Now, there was a camp that believed that a man could. If his wife burnt the toast, he could divorce her. All he had to do was walk down to the local courthouse, sign a bill of divorcement, and put her away. And in that culture, that was a devastating thing for a woman to experience. There was another political camp that believed that the only allowable grounds for divorce was when an act of adultery was committed. So no matter how Jesus answered the question, he was going to alienate one of those two parties. And they knew that when they asked him the question. What was Jesus' response? He said, Moses permitted divorce and only for this reason, for the grounds of adultery and only because of the hardness of heart, because of the sin of man. And then he added this, but from the beginning, it was not so. For this cause will a man leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. What is he saying? Divorce is never God's best. It is never God's will. It is permissible only on specific grounds and only because of the hardness of heart. That is why I stand up here every time I perform a wedding ceremony, hundreds of them in my career, and I have said the same thing to every couple, maybe in different words. This is the second most important decision you will ever make, who you will marry. So my challenge to the young people is this, get it right the first time so that divorce is never in your vocabulary. That is the challenge that we face. Now I know again, having said that, some of you may be wondering if I am divorced, does that mean I can never experience the blessings of God? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What it does mean is this, you will never in this life ever enjoy the richest blessings that God gives when two believers marry and spend the rest of their lives together with divorce never entering into the picture. When we come to this legacy principle, the final one, here it is. And I hope you get this. I hope the young people get this, which parenthetically, I don't believe many of them are. I am saddened when I hear reports coming from our youth leaders of how compromised and compromising many of our young people have become when what they watch on MTV characterizes their very nature. The raunchiness of that kind of broadcasting becomes a joke to many of them. The sexual innuendos with which they live and the unfaithfulness with which they declare themselves is a sad commentary on where this legacy might be going for many of them. I certainly praise God for those who get it. But I am concerned, I am worried about those 
who will marry the wrong person because they have the wrong values. Legacy principle. Here it is. I want my children and I want my grandchildren to model in their marriages the intimate relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church. Clearly, when we come to Psalm 45, we are dealing with what we call a messianic psalm. We know that because Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, quotes Psalm 45, and it says this in Hebrews 1. But about the Son, about Jesus, he says, Your throne, O God. God is speaking to the Son. God says to the Son, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Your righteousness will be a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. You have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. That's what Hebrews 1 says about Jesus. And it's a direct quote out of Psalm 45. So now we know that Psalm 45 is a psalm that is speaking about Jesus Christ. It is a messianic psalm. Now, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about marital unfaithfulness. The Bible equates the relationship that God has to his people with that of the relationship that we have with our wives and with our husbands. The Bible equates the relationship that Jesus has with his church to the relationship you have with your wife or your husband. Out of all of the comparisons he could have made, out of all of the analogies he could have come up with, he came up with that one. He said, I want you to know how your marriages are to be governed. I want you to know what is the driving force or ought to be the driving force behind the intimacy you have as husband and wife. The driving force ought to be the model that Jesus Christ has presented to us in his love for the church. The bridegroom and the bride are modeled in the relationship that Christ has with his church. Psalm 45 in the superscription, the very first words say this, for the director of music, obviously a worship psalm, to the tune of lilies, a feminine word, by the way, so that the primary spokesman in this psalm is the church, speaking of the Messiah. And then notice what it says next, of the sons of Korah, a maskal, a wedding song. A wedding song. This is a wedding song. You know, when the Bible speaks of marital unfaithfulness, it does so in very stark, graphic language. For example, in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 15, it says this, Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves 
to their gods, notice the word he used there, when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. In other words, the prostitute and the prostituter is not content with their own prostitution. They want to drag you, the kingdom of God, the people of God into the mix. Verse 16, and when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Do you hear the graphic detail in that passage? Here is the picture of a believer, one who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, one who has submitted himself to Messiah, marrying a non-believer, marrying a non-believer, and God calls that prostitution. Not in the sense that you and I understand the word prostitute, but something far more grave, far more serious, a spiritual prostitution in which we sell out by marrying the wrong person. I have never seen, I'm sure it has happened, but I have never seen it where missionary dating works. You know what I mean by missionary dating? I'm a Christian. He's not, but I'll win him to the Lord or vice versa. Inevitably, what happens is that the believer does not pull up the non-believer. The non-believer drags down the believer. Compromise entails. God calls that prostitution in the spiritual sense of the word. It is a selling out. I have never, nor will I ever, marry a believer to a non-believer. That is not permissible in this church. We have taken a very hard stand on that. We have so many graphic examples in scripture that tell us categorically what God thinks of us selling out that way. The parents of Samson begged him as he continued as a young man to grow his hair and to make regular daily journeys down into the land of the Philistines looking for the loose women there. His parents would beg him, are you saying to us, son, that there are no women here in Israel that you can marry? Is your mind so distorted and so determined to marry outside the faith? And they begged him to listen. Now you know the rest of the story, how Delilah gave him a buzz cut. And you know what happened as the result of his failure to obey and to divorce himself, and I say that in quotes, from compromising by intermarrying with the Philistine women. It cost him 
his life. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 16 says, And the Lord said to Moses, You, Moses, are going to rest with your fathers. But these people, speaking of the rest of the nation, will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and they will break the covenant I made with them. Do you notice the words and the language God uses when he speaks of the intermarriage of believers with non-believers? He calls it prostitution. Those are not my words. Those are the words he has chosen. He is the one who ordained the marriage relationship to be a model of what God's relationship, Christ's relationship is with his church. Now, having said that, the Bible also has a lot to say about true marital love. For example, Isaiah 54 and verse 5 says, For your maker, your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Did you catch that? Your God, your Redeemer, your Sovereign One is your husband. Isaiah 62 and verse 4 says, No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hesvizba and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted a watchman on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent, day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. He has posted a watchman over his church. And he has warned his church, never, ever prostitute yourselves and intermarry with the unbeliever because that constitutes a marital unfaithfulness between you and your God. Stark warnings, aren't they? Note the beauty of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and verse 7 of chapter 19, where he says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Why? For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Or Revelation 21 and verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Or Revelation 22, the last chapter of the great book, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say come, and let him who hears say come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift 
of the water of life. Have you caught the contrast here of what the scriptures teach? God clearly tells us that the relationship he has with his church is that of a husband to his wife and a wife to her husband. He warns against prostitution, having other gods before him, marrying outside of the faith. And yet he comforts us with the great encouragement of his word that we are indeed his bride and he is the bridegroom. Thus, every Christian marriage is a microcosm, a reflection of the relationship that Christ has with his church. I also tell young couples when they're up here, in fact, we were kind of joking around about this the other night, that I, for all these years, have said a lot of things similar at every wedding that I preach, and I probably will not change that because there are certain things I want to make clear to the couple. I'll stand up here, they're looking at me. Here's the man over here, here's the woman over here. And I'll say this to them, take a look at each other. This is as good as it's gonna get. He's never ever going to be as handsome as he is right now, and she is never ever going to be as beautiful as she is right now. From here on, it's downhill. <laughs> now why do I say that? Because one of the things that's going to happen no sooner than the honeymoon is this couple is going to realize that the other person is a sinner. That there are weaknesses and failures and inconsistencies. He's not always going to smell as good as he does right now. She's not always going to be as attractive as she is right now. There is going to be a, an abuse, if you will, of the marital relationship in this sense, that we will take each other for granted. Many men will open the car door before they're married, and some will take off with their wives waiting in the driveway after they're married. <laughs> because we treat each other differently, we learn to accommodate the sin natures that we both have. And so it becomes critical that every couple understands that in this life, you must not quit. You must, as the church is being sanctified, be sanctified in your marriage. Now, the church will never arrive at the point of perfect sanctification, not in this life. But does that mean the church ought not to seek perfect sanctification does that mean we are not to be holy and holier the next day and holier the following day? Or are we to quit? Likewise, in our homes, some of our marriages may not end in divorce, but still remain hell on earth for some of you. It becomes a very difficult thing when two believers, two who say they love the Lord, treat each other like dirt. It's almost understandable when it happens between a believer and a non-believer. But when two believers 
treat each other with the kind of hatred that enemies have for each other. How sad is that day? You know, when you and I leave a legacy to our children, we will also have left them a culture of divorce, a culture of alienation. What is the character of a godly marriage? What ought the character of a godly marriage look like? Well, let's say first of all this. Christ has loved you with such a great love that the Apostle Paul says that it is the love of Christ that constrains me. In other words, Paul says, I am constrained by the love of Christ. It's got a hold on me. It grips me. Likewise, in our homes, we ought to be constrained by a love for our spouses where we are consumed with the very thoughts of them. When Jesus left his disciples one day, he said, I'm going up to the mountain to pray. And while he left them, they were on a boat. And in the boat, there came a storm. And the storm threatened their very lives. It is intriguing to me what that verse says in that context. It says, now Jesus is away from them. He's up in the mountain. And the Bible says, and he beheld them there. In other words, even while he was away from them, his eyes were on them. The thoughts of his children consumed him. He never let them go. Even when he was away from them, he was seeing them and thinking on them. May I suggest to you that that is one of the characteristics of a godly marriage? When your spouse is on the front burner of your thought life, where you, in essence, believe and communicate to others that she is the most important person in your life, that he is the most important person in your life. I tell every couple what I'm going to tell you. You must come to the place in your Christian marriage where you men are able to look squarely into the eyes of your wife and say this to her, there is no other woman on the face of this earth that can make me as happy as you can. And you look at your husband square in the eyes and you say, there is no other man on the face of this earth that can make me as happy as you can. And your marriages need to be consumed and constrained by that kind of love where you're always measuring your decisions in the context of your wife or your husband, that they are the most important thing in your life. Verse 1 of Psalm 45 says this, My heart is stirred by a noble theme, 
as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. Now we'll unpack those verses today and next week a little. John Calvin speaks of this verse and translates it this way. My heart boils over with a great matter. Now what is that great matter that boils over the heart? The rest of the psalm talks about the marital relationship between Christ and his church as a model of the relationship between you and your spouse. The writer's mind is so filled with what she is about to say concerning her husband that she cannot contain herself. Her tongue is full of the praises of a skillful writer. What are the characteristics of a godly marriage? Secondly, just as nothing or nobody should ever compete with our love for God, so there ought to be no desire on your part for any other man or any other woman who will compete for your spouse's love. Look at verse 2. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. In other words, there is no man like you. You are laced with grace. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're sitting there and you're thinking right now, you've never lived with my husband. You've never lived with my wife. There is anything but lacing with grace that's going on in the home. That's not the point. That's not the point. You see, a Christian marriage is not a two-way proposition. It's not a proposition between a man and a woman alone. That is why a non-believer can never, ever experience God's best in their marriage. Now, you may have trouble with what I just said, but listen to it in this context. A marriage that's made in Christ is not two ways. It's three ways. It's the relationship that I have with my Father in heaven. The relationship that my wife has with her Father in heaven. That is why, again, I tell young couples this. And usually there are many non-believers sitting in the audience, friends, family, extended family members, and they're blown away by this. But it's the truth. Here it is. Before you are husband and wife, you are brother and sister in Christ. And that is a much higher relationship than marriage. That is why when we get to heaven, there is no marriage. Nor are we given in marriage. Because there's a much deeper relationship that we have as two believers living in the context of marriage. Before she is my wife, she is my sister in Christ. We are partners in ministry serving the one God that has saved both of us. So here's what happens. The closer she draws to God and the closer I draw to God, 
in that equilateral triangle, God's sitting at the apex. The closer we draw to him, the closer we draw to each other. We begin to see each other in the context of the love of Christ. That is why she's able to put up with my bad manners. That is why she's able to put up with my inconsistencies and weaknesses and failures because we're able to see each other through the blood of Christ that forgave us and cleansed us. There's a much more profound relationship. And so in that sense, she can honestly say of me and I can honestly say of her, there is no other woman like you. You are laced with grace. Out of all of the women on the face of this earth, out of all of the places I could have been, out of all of the physical places I could have been the night I met you, I met you here and I met you here. And God brought us together for this reason, that we might model the relationship that Christ has with his church. What an awesome privilege that becomes for me to say to her, there is no other woman like you. And for her to say of me, there is no other man like you. What are the characteristics of a godly marriage? Thirdly, just as we are safe in the arms of Christ, so our homes, our homes ought to be a safe haven. Look at verse three. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Here the word mighty is used to describe God. But where does this might come from? He says, gird the sword. In other words, that term, that phrase means prepare for battle. We are in a war. The war is to destroy the marriage. The booty of the war are your kids. Somehow or another, we have bought into the lie that says the kids are just not affected by the divorce. The blended families are going to be the Partridge family, living happily ever after, solving and resolving their issues in a half-hour episode. Everybody loves each other. Everybody is happy. And yet in my 38 years, I have never, ever seen a child unaffected by a divorce. It simply doesn't happen. Those of you who are children of a divorce know exactly what I'm talking about. And as we sit here today, as we attempt to build our own marriages, we are entering into a war. 
A war with consequences. A war for booty. The booty being your children. They are affected. In fact, I tell all second marriages, and I have, I'm sure there are exceptions, I've just never seen them. The most difficult part of the second marriage is going to be the relationship of the step-parent with the stepchild. And if you compound that with the fact that children come from both sides and you bring a context of divorce and conflict into the home and you somehow or another think that two homes filled with conflict that become one home are going to be conflict-free is just a mirage. There is going to inevitably be a struggle between the step-parent and the stepchildren, especially when it comes to the discipline of those children. All-out war usually breaks out over that. So prepare yourself for warfare because the children are who is at stake. How do we do that? We gird the sword. Now, you know that Ephesians passage. It talks about wearing the whole armor of God. It's a wonderful passage. You know how it starts out? Put on the helmet of salvation. In other words, the first and most important thing that needs to happen is faith in Christ. You must come to the place in your marriage where you are trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation. Not by good works, but by faith and submission to the work of Christ on the cross. You put on your breast, the breastplate of righteousness, not a self-righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ who has obeyed the law in every single respect and he imputes that righteousness to you. You wear him as your breastplate of righteousness. The loins, the most sensitive part of the body, are girded with truth. How relevant is that in an age in which truth has been ignored, when falsehood now fills the void left by the absence of truth? Right is now called wrong, wrong is now called right, and you and I are raising children in a context about marriage that the world simply doesn't believe. You don't get along, get a divorce. You made a mistake, move on, get a divorce. Without any thought of marrying the right person in the first place. So wear the truth, because when Satan attacks, that's where he's going to attack. That's the most sensitive part. He's going to hit you where it hurts. And that is in the area of doctrinal error. Error. Put on your feet the necessary gear to march into battle. Have your feet shod, he says, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What made a Roman army so fierce was they had special shoes that no other armies had. They were able to walk a lot further than the enemy thought they could walk on a given day. Surely they can't walk this far. Oh, yes, they can, because they had the right shoes on. So now here we have this soldier. 
Now he's holding a six foot long shield of faith with interlocking edges on the right and on the left. He could literally hook up with the guy next to him on his right and on his left and be covered from head to toe and move forward as one great big steel curtain. So he's got the helmet, he's got the breastplate, he's got the loins, he's got the feet, he's got the shield. So he attacks the enemy, but he doesn't have a weapon. He doesn't have a weapon. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, and above all, carry the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Your children need to see that they are in the arms of a safe home. What makes your home safe? When you are guided by the Word of God. When your children see that the decisions that are made are not in order to enforce dad's will or mom's will, but God's will. That mom and dad are firmly entrenched in the Word of God. That Christ and His Word is what's most important to them. My children were raised in a safe home. I can tell you, in fact, I'm going to brag to you. This is bragging. Here it is. In all of the years we've been married, my children have never heard me once raise my voice to my wife. Now, they've heard me raise my voice to them, but they've never heard me raise my voice to her. They were raised with a plaque on my bookshelf at home that somebody gave me when we were just married. And we have lived by the statement on that plaque. Every once in a while, I would take my kids into the room and say, read that. Read that. The most important thing a father can do for his children is to love their mother. And they have been raised in that context, not just with lip knowledge, but they have seen us make decisions and order the home and raise our family and even discipline them, not in order to punish them because we're disappointed, but to discipline them because God's disappointed. Inevitably, we would say this to them. You're receiving this discipline today because you sinned against God. Sure, mom and dad are disappointed and we're hurt by what you did. But we're more grieved by the fact that you've hurt God, that you've disappointed him. And then our task in that discipline was to bring them to the point of repentance where they saw what they did in the context of Christ's forgiveness. Your children need to be guided by a home that is safe, a safe haven where doctrine matters, where scripture matters. There is a fidelity in marriage, a faithfulness in marriage, a proper use of discipline in a marriage. We are armed with certain armor, but we are worthless without the sword. We get up to the enemy, we've got all this nice armor on. He looks at us and says, now what are you going to do? I have my weapons, but you have no weapon. All you have is a bunch of armor. Where's your sword? And he chews us up and he spits us out because our homes are not safe 
What makes your home safe? A commitment to the word, to faithfully obey the word. Do you love your wife? Do you love her men in the same way that Christ has loved you? The answer to that question is no. None of you can sit here today, none of us can stand here today and say, we have loved our wives the same way Christ has loved us. But should we quit? Should we throw in the towel? Should we say, I just fail too often? Or must we strive as the church does to be day by day, moment by moment, more and more sanctified in Christ so that each day, each year, my wife, your husband can look back and say of the previous year, I thought he loved me then, but compared to how he loves me now, that was nothing. But if the love grows cold and the stagnation sets in, I can almost guarantee you that the reason it does so is because you have abandoned the word. What are the characteristics of a godly marriage? We'll continue this next week when we come together. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.